Welcome to the, the fourth of the John Knox lectures. Bob Solnit is going to be talking today on phenomenal and academic instinction. Okay. Um, I want to start today by kind of reviewing a little bit where we have been and where I hope we're going in order to try to keep a little bit of track of a, a, um, a line of argument, uh, devious and indirect as it may be. Uh, now, the, the, the debates about Mary that we talked about, uh, I talked about on two, two weeks ago, uh, and the knowledge argument, they raise questions about the extent to which features of our representation of certain facts, facts about phenomenal experience, what it's like, belong to a conception of the world as it is in itself. Uh, that is whether we have to make room in our metaphysical conception, uh, our absolute conception of the world, for um, um, the distinctive kind of phenomenal facts. Uh, the alternative to this is that the distinctive facts about phenomenal experience should be understood as features of our perspective on the world, that is, facts that essentially involve a relation between uh, a representation and something being represented. Now, most of the materialist strategies talked about two weeks ago um, for responding to the knowledge argument aim in one way or another uh, to explain the change in Mary's situation when she leaves the room and sees colors, not as the learning of a new fact, but in some way, um, ra uh, some kind of change in her relationship to the facts. Now, the idea of an absolute conception of reality is notoriously problematic, and uh, there are no doubt uh, confusions in some ways of characterizing it. So I suggested when I talked about this the first time that it's important to recognize that every representation is a representation from a certain perspective in the world, one that uses the resources that are available from that perspective. If we're to make sense of an idea, a conception of the world as it is in itself, we need to separate the content of the representation from the perspective of the one doing the representing, and from the means uh, that are used, uh, um, the means by which the content is uh, expressed. Now, I want to reinforce this general point by taking a brief look at another discussion than Williams uh, of the ab so-called absolute conception, uh, a discussion that I think shows the need for care in distinguishing the content of a representation and getting a sort of uh, uh, grip on uh, uh, the kind of notion of content that can allow us to abstract content away from means used to represent. And this is a discussion by John, John uh, Campbell uh, in the context of a discussion of color. Uh, so what um, and I'm not going to talk about color here, but, but just some remarks he makes in sort of introducing um, uh, the issue he's mainly concerned with in that paper. Um, so um, this is a quote from, from Campbell. There is no absolute or objective conception which refers to particulars. 
the argument for this, or the sort of general line of argument is, strategy of argument is that um, the world might contain qualitative duplicates, which are symmetrically arranged in such a way that it would be impossible to distinguish different particular things except by their relation to the one who is identifying them. Um, and since, again, quote from Campbell, the defining feature of such a description of reality, again, shift now from conception of reality to description of reality, uh, that is an absolute description. The defining feature is that understanding it does not require one to exploit anything idiosyncratic about one's own position in the world. So this, uh, this definition implies that the identification of particulars cannot be part, says Campbell argues, of such a description, such an absolute description. Now this seems to me uh, confused. Any description, whether it refers to particulars or is in purely general terms, will necessarily involve a language or some form of representation and the representation will have the content that it has in virtue of the position of the representer in the world, the idiosyncratic position of the representer in the world. That is, it will have it in virtue of his, her, or its relation to the particulars or kinds or properties or relations or whatever else that the representation is about. But what's supposed to be absolute and objective or not is the content of the description and not the means used to express that content. The fact that we cannot identify particulars except by using our names, which get their reference from our relation to the things, doesn't cast any doubt on the objectivity of the propositions that we express. If it did, that is, if we characterize the notion of an absolute conception in such a way uh, that it does compromise the possibility of an absolute conception, then it would cast out on the objectivity of all or absoluteness of all representation, including those in purely general terms. Now, I'm not sure what consequences Campbell wants to draw from his, um, this was a, somewhat of a digression in the particular context in which it occurs. Um, um, so I'm not sure what kind of conclusions he wants to draw from, from the view the thesis that, quote, we have to abandon, again, another quote from, uh, from Campbell, we have to abandon the notion of an absolute or objective description of reality which identifies particular things. But what one, a way one is tempted to understand this conclusion, again, shifting to a conclusion about content, is that it implies that our metaphysics must not allow distinctions between qualitatively indiscernible possibilities. Now, and this sort of touches on the issue that John uh, Hawthorne was raising in discussion uh, last week, sort of the, uh, the sort of Lewis kind of metaphysics where uh, qualitatively indistinguishable uh, situations are identical. Now, such a metaphysical conception might be defensible on other grounds, but I think it would be fallacious to defend it on the basis of facts about our capacity to refer. Now, it's a controversial matter just how the content of a representation should be characterized and separated from the means used for representing, and that's one of the issues I was um, circling around in the second um, 
lecture. Uh, I talked then about Fregian thoughts in the context of a discussion of a strategy for responding to the knowledge argument. A Fregian thought is supposed to be the content of a judgment or belief, but it's also a mode of presentation, a way something is presented to us. And there's some ambivalence in the talk of by neo-Fregians in particular about whether thoughts and other senses can be abstracted from the relation between speakers and thinkers on the one hand and things that their speech and thought is about, um, things that their speech and thought are about uh, on the other hand. To the extent that there are distinctions between Phrygian thoughts that don't correspond to distinctions between the way the thought represents the world to be, that is from the truth conditions of the thought, then this conception of content is mixing some elements of the perspective on the world with a conception of the world as it is in itself. And while uh, a notion of content that has that feature uh, may have some useful applications if uh, it can be made clear exactly what these objects, these modes of presentation are, uh, but it won't help uh, to clarify um, the, the notion of an absolute conception of reality and to help us distinguish the um, the, the notion of, of the content uh, from, from the other aspects of, of representation. And the sort of the possible world's conception of content that I'm using uh, in trying to characterize uh, the issues um, is an attempt to mark this distinction. Now, David Lewis, uh, in his admirable, admirably sort of uh, clear and explicit uh, discussion of the case of Mary drew out, and I, I talked about this two weeks ago, a little, I cited Lewis's um, principle, uh, the, which he takes to be the consequence of accepting the conclusion of the knowledge argument, the conclusion that Mary learns a distinctive kind of fact about the world as it is in itself when she, um, when she emerges from her room. And I'll just remind you the conclusion is um, what Lewis called the hypothesis of phenomenal information. This was on the handout and the um, slides on, I guess I didn't show slides that time, but it was on the handout uh, two weeks ago. Um, so I just wanted to comment further on this, on this uh, hypothesis because what Lewis goes on to argue after stating this hypothesis is, is that um, to point out a feature, which is that the issue about uh, the issue um, that, that the argument raises is not really materialism or physicalism. That is, he notes that uh, in giving the knowledge argument, no assumptions about the content of a materialist or physicalist theory uh, play any role in Jackson's argument. So, Lewis suggests, suppose some dualist theory were true. Suppose there were spiritual fluids or noetic forces or irreducible immaterial qualia or whatever. Presumably, whatever sort of content one's, one's sort of basic empirical metaphysical theory about human beings should contain. Presumably, we could write down a true theory about these things, whatever they are, 
and black and white, good black and white print, and let Mary read all about it in her black and white room. But this won't help her to know what it is like. So the restriction that Jackson's thought experiment puts on Mary's education, Lewis, I think, persuasively argues, has nothing to do with really the content of her information, but depends only on the form in which she receives it. So if the hypothesis of phenomenal information is correct, uh, then the upshot must be that this particular kind of information, phenomenal information, is for some reason incapable, ineffable, incapable of being uh, communicated, except by certain very specific means of having experience. Now I think, and this is a reason Lewis took pursuit, that even the dualists should be suspicious of the hypothesis of phenomenal information and should be looking along with the materialist for a way of avoiding it. Now, I think Lewis is right um, that one, uh, whatever one's sort of metaphysical uh, views, dualist or materialist, one should resist this hypothesis. And I don't think talk of either modes of presentation or of concepts, which I'll talk more about um, later, uh, will help to clarify Uh, the issues raised by the knowledge argument. But the strategy of developing an analogy with self-locating thought uh, seemed to me, which I talked about at the end and last week, two weeks ago and last last time, seems to me more promising since the phenomena of self-locating thought can be represented in a way that makes explicit the relation between a conception of the world as it is in itself and a conception of the thinker's perspective on the world. The idea is trying to make very clear how those two things interact. The aim of the model of self-locating thought that I talked about last week was to provide some resources for clarifying the complex relation between a perspective on the world and a representation of the world itself. One of the things that emerged from the main example I talked about last time, the case of Sleeping Beauty, is that there may be distinctions between the possibilities between the ways the world might be that can be represented only from certain perspectives. But that once represented can be abstracted from the perspective. So in the case of Sleeping Beauty, there was a distinction that she could make on Monday and Tuesday, should she be awake then, that she was unable to make on Sunday. This was a distinction, as she would have put it then, between a possible world in which today is Monday and a different world in which today is Tuesday. On Sunday, she was unable to distinguish these two possible worlds since in both of them an event of the same kind occurred on both days, on both Monday and Tuesday. To make the distinction, one had to be there, or alternatively, to remember later, having been there so that one has the capacity by causal memory intera- uh, uh, connection to make, uh, to, to make the reference. Um, so one had to be in a position to refer uniquely uh, to that time that I was awakened. But even on Sunday, Sleeping Beauty was able to describe the distinction that she was unable to make, to describe two possible situations which she could see to be different, but she couldn't distinguish from each other. Now, it's true in general that what is said, whether it's self-locating or not, is said in a context against a background of shared information that includes information about the context itself. 
possible worlds compatible with the context, with the shared background information, are possible worlds which the participants in, the con- in which the participants in the conversation exist and are having the conversation they're having. That is, when one represents a context, one represents it as a set of alternative possibilities that are the live options open in that context. But those are all possible worlds in which not only the subject matter of the discussion varies from world to world, the facts about the subject matter, but the facts about the discourse um, are a part of the, uh, part of the world. Um, this set of, of indexed possibilities, because one wants to represent the location of the individuals in the worlds, um, is the set of live options they intend to distinguish between with their speech acts. In making an assertion in such a context, one expresses a proposition which might be represented by the set of worlds in which it is true, which, if it is accepted, changes the context by eliminating the possibilities in which it's false. So this is sort of the general story. In some cases, the labels, the, the location, the, in, uh, the mapping of the individual into the worlds will be irrelevant. Uh, to the information that's conveyed that is irrelevant to the way the possibilities are distinguished by the content of the speech act. Or it may be that the labels and the links between the worlds, between the world, between the speaker and time in the worlds, are relevant only as a means of determining the information the speaker intends to convey and not to the information itself. So suppose self-identification is not at issue. You know perfectly well who I am, but I use the first-person pronoun to tell you that I was born in New Jersey. You take away from the conversation the objective information that Bob Stalnaker was born in New Jersey, something you can detach from the context. Um, In such a case, we can detach the information from the context in which it was expressed or from the situation in which it's believed. So we can identify the content of what's said or thought, the way it distinguishes between possibilities, independently of the fact that it was something that was said or thought on that particular occasion. But sometimes the information, the way the speech act or thought distinguishes between the possibilities that define the context, essentially involves the sort of labeling or links um, to the person and the context, It's information about the participants in the conversation as participants in the conversation or about the subject of a belief as the subject who has that belief. In such a case, the content cannot be detached from the context in which it is expressed or thought. In this kind of case, I'll say the information is essentially contextual information. So suppose you didn't know who I was and what I told you was not that I was born in New Jersey, but that I and Bob Stalnecker. You would presumably learn something about the objective world from what I told you, together with what you already knew and what you observe, as I tell you. But there's not a piece of information that is the content of what I told you that you can simply add to your stock of beliefs about the objective world. Now, the point here is not simply that a proposition can be about a context in which something is said, or about a person's location in the world. A piece of information about a speech act or about a judgment or a belief can be an ordinary 
objective, context-independent proposition about the world as it is in itself. So, for example, it might be an objective fact, though I doubt it, about the centerless world that David Kaplan said or believed on January 14, 1975, 2.15 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, that his pants were on fire. The point about essentially contextual information is that sometimes the content of what is expressed or believed in a context is not detachable in this way. So an example of Gareth, uh, that Gareth Evans used in his discussion of demonstrative reference illustrates the point. So uh, our subject sees a ship, perhaps a very big one, an aircraft carrier, through two widely separated windows. Our subject, let's call her Phoebe, is surprised to learn that that ship, seen through one window, is the same as that one, seen through the other window. This is a piece of, one might think, contingent information that she learns. That is, it's information, and it's information that can be straightforwardly represented as a distinction between possible worlds. The possible worlds excluded by the surprising information are those in which two different ships are visible through the two different windows. It's clear enough how to represent in possible worlds terms the increment of information, what happens when the prior belief state changes to the posterior belief state. But the context in which the possibilities are distinguished seems to be essential to the identity of the information. The day before, when Phoebe was in a different place, uh, uh, she was not in a position to know or to be ignorant of the fact, this fact, about the identity of the two ships. Now, I think it seems intuitively right to say that the information acquired in such a case is not detachable from the situation in which it's acquired. But can we say more explicitly what this comes to in the context of the kind of possible world model we're, we're talking about? So one should, think of the, I think one should think of the acquisition or imparting of information in incremental terms. So one begins in a prior belief state or in a context, let's see, if, uh, here we have a very, just completely abstract representation of a space, a logical space of possibilities, and the oval here represents the possibilities compatible with a particular context in which a discussion is taking place, or perhaps compatible with, a, if we're talking about an individual's change of belief, uh, compatible with a person's prior state of belief. So this is a prior context or a prior um, state of belief. Um, um, then when the acquisition or expression of new information is constituted by the elimination of some of those possibilities. So um, you want to eliminate the possibilities on one side of this line, uh, and so this then represents the posterior uh, context. You can take sort of the receiving of information as the elimination of possibilities uh, in that sense. Now, normally, one thinks of the job of the expression uh, of a piece of information. A piece of information is itself a proposition. So it's natural to think that uh, you, the, the way in which those possibilities were eliminated is that one learns some proposition to be true, which is also true outside of the context, and, um, and that's what does the job of eliminating um, the possibilities. 
In most cases, that is, one eliminates possibilities by coming to believe a proposition that distinguishes between a much wider range of possibilities and that then becomes a more or less stable part of one's conception of what the world is like. So you shift the context or you learn you were mistaken about some other things, but you still stick with this, uh, with this one piece of information. But in some cases, what is said or learned distinguishes only between the possibilities in a local context. And uh, in particular, um, the kind of self-locating information has that, um, often has that, uh, that feature. Linguists often represent uh, the meaning of a sentence as its context change potential, that is, a, as a function from prior context to posterior context. So that's a, they sort of think of the meaning in that way. And this is a representation of the meaning of an expression that's restricted to the minimal job that a piece of information does, namely to change a context. Um, so if one asks, just to sort of elaborate a bit on this, if one asks, say, about some piece of information uh, that was acquired, uh, something that someone said, you can ask, okay, I see how that changed the context, but uh, consider this counterfactual possible world is what you said true or false in that situation, which is outside of the context, in the uh, sort of stable uh, uh, objective uh, proposition case, you're going to get an answer to that question, but uh, the more sort of local uh, a piece of information is, the less you can say about what the truth conditions are for that outside of the context. So in particular, you imagine the amnesiac uh, who has a belief about himself. I believe that I am tired, says the amnesiac. And you might ask, well, in a possible situation, we know what to do with the amnesiac's beliefs, what belief he's expressing in a certain sense, uh, um, what follows about the nature of his state of belief. But if we ask, in some possible situation um, uh, incompatible with the, uh, with the amnesiac's belief, is the proposition true or false there? Uh, much more difficult um, to say. So anyway, so that's, that's the sort of general picture of sort of contextually, uh, essentially contextual uh, information and the, the sort of idea is perhaps the way Mary changes upon leaving her room uh, is by moving to a context in which the resources available to her for distinguishing between possibilities change. Perhaps her new knowledge is essentially contextual in a way that's something like the way our knowledge of who and where we are in the world. So what I'm going to do is first try to develop this analogy a little bit, and then look at a consequence of taking it seriously, uh, a consequence that uh, will provide some intuitive ground for, for resistance and also will have some sort of consequences for the way we think about knowledge more generally. So I'm going to start with a simple, um, unproblematic case of self-locating belief. And this is on the handout. Uh, Alice of the Homeland Security Bomb Squad is in the Rose Garden on Tuesday morning at 10.47 p.m. And again, this is our theorist's description of her situation. She points to the ground beneath a particular rose bush and says a bomb is buried there, and unless we defuse it now, it will explode within five minutes. Um, Okay, that's the first part of the story. Second part of the story, Barry is in a room far away from the Rose Garden on Monday, the day before. And he knows that the next day at 10.47 a.m., 
there will be a bomb buried under the rosebush, which is 10.25 meters east and 4.35 meters north of the southwest corner of the garden, the very place that Alice will then be pointing to. And that unless this bomb is diffused very soon after that time, 1047, it will explode before 1052. Okay, so that's the no, that's what Barry uh, knows. Now, Barry knows a lot about the situation in this little story, but he doesn't know what Alice will know the next day. He's not in a position to know that. Is the knowledge that Mary lacks in Jackson's story something like this? That is, it is knowledge that after she gets it, is naturally expressed with a demonstrative. Now I know that seeing red is like this. And her relation to what she's demonstrating, presumably some kind of type of experience that she is either having or recalling, seems to be essential to the character of the information it's uh, used to express, the demonstrative be used to express in this way, uh, in the same way that it is in the case of Alice. But the analogy, if it implies that Mary is not ignorant of any relevant fact about the world as it is in itself, in the way in which Barry is not ignorant, of any of uh, the relevant facts about the, what's going to happen in the Rose Garden, unless certain things take place. Um, uh, the analogy, if it implies that Mary uh, is ignorant in this way, may seem strained. Uh, so before considering one reason why it might be strained, let me sketch a variation on the story of Mary just to try to make the parallel precise. And this is a, a, a variation on the story which I um, talked about in a paper um, a year or two ago um, about Thomas Nagel's objective self. Okay, so this is the coin flip scenario. So Mary is still in her room. She's told that she will be subjected to the following experiment. She will be uh, shown either a red or a green star to be chosen by the flip of a coin, and she's told in great detail the exact circumstances of the two possible scenarios that will then take place. So given her extensive knowledge of neurophysiology and color science, she knows that when the experiment is performed, she will be in the presence of a star with one of two specific light reflectance properties, because she knows all about the light reflectance properties of red and green. She also knows that she will be uh, one in either one uh, of two in, in one of two specific brain states, relatively quite detailed specific uh, brain states. Both before and after the experiment is performed, um, then there are two possible worlds compatible with Mary's knowledge. Call them worlds R and G. So uh, she says, I'm either going to be in, in the situation, if the coin flip comes up one way, in which I see a red star, and with my brain in just this state, uh, and the reflectance coming off the thing in, of, of that kind and so on, or I'll be in, in world G. As it happens, the red star is chosen, so she's in fact in possible world um, R. Now in a sense, after the experiment is performed, Mary knows what it is like to see red, although not under that description. Now I know, she says, either what it is like to see red or what it is like to see green. I just don't know which it is. Since for all I know, this experience could be the experience of seeing red or of seeing green. So to use the terminology I talked about in discussing John Perry's response to the knowledge argument, 
the uh, experiment takes Mary only to stage one of the cognitive achievement of learning what it's like to see red. Now, what changed about Mary's epistemic situation when she was shown the star is that she was then in a position to represent information about this experience, just as Alice, at the scene of the impending explosion, was in a position to represent in her speech and thought the contextual information that that bomb is about to explode. That is, will explode soon after now. Uh, Now, notice that in terms of the analogy with sort of self-locating belief, Mary's situation is not being compared with the situation of amnesiacs or people who don't know what time it is or where they are. Rather, the analogy is this. Mary is like Barry, who is not in a position to know a certain piece of contextual information because he's not in the relevant context. Mary's situation with respect to color, when she's still in her room, is like his situation with respect to Alice's, the events going on in the Rose Garden. Um, and her, his situation with respect to Alice, whose warning about the bomb took place far away and at a different time. Barry knew the relevant objective facts. There's no further information we might have given him in his room on Monday to bring it about that he knew what Alice knew. He would have had to be there in Alice's situation, in her context and to have known that this is the place, 10.2 meters, 5 meters east, 4.35 meters north of the southwest corner, and that it is now 10.47, in order to put his information together with, uh, with the relevant contextual facts to get uh, into a situation like, like Mary's. Now, if you buy this analogy, then I think you can see Mary's, the knowledge that Mary lacks when she's still in her room. Uh, you can explain it. You can understand the knowledge in terms of the elimination of possibilities, genuine possibilities, without invoking the hypothesis of phenomenal information, without sort of refining the possibilities in the way in which that hypothesis requires. But the fans of qualia will protest. The analogy won't fly. There is nothing essentially indexical or demonstrative about the information Mary lacks. Let's assume she had, while still in her room, a name, Fred. That's spelled P-H-R-E-D, for red-type qualitative experiences for phenomenal red. So she had a name for phenomenal red, whatever kind of property it is, uh, a name for a type of qualitative experience. Uh, So... Uh, the type of experience that people like Mary would have when looking at red things in normal conditions. Presumably the property of being in a Fred state is correlated with a physical functional state type. And if materialism is true, then presumably that property is a functional physical state type. Mary, because of her vast empirical knowledge, knew all about the physical functional property that is or correlates with the property of being in a Fred state, though she didn't know what it's like to be in a state of that type. Then, when she's shown a red, the red star, she wonders whether this experience is a Fred experience. But Mary could then coin another name for her experience. Suppose, following, again, John Perry's terminology, she names it wow. Now she can express her question that is, again, at the stage before she's learned what, which of the two colors she's seeing, she can exp- express her question 
which she initially posed with a demonstrative, with an essentially indexical uh, expression, uh, whether this is a Fred experience, she can pose it as a question about a context-independent objective proposition. Okay, so here's the coin flip scenario. We have world R and world G. Mary looking at a red star, looking at a green star. She doesn't know which situation she's in. So both possible worlds are compatible with her knowledge. Uh, she's thinking, is this Fred? That's the demonstrative question. Uh, so she said, she says, let's this experience be named wow. And now she says, does wow equal Fred? Um, and of course, uh, Mary also is in the counterfactual world G. And in that world, she is asking, is this Fred? And she's saying, let this experience be named wow. And then she's asking, does wow equal Fred? So the same since she knows that she is asking these questions, that she is coining these words, they are taking place in all the worlds that are compatible with her knowledge. Um, okay, so uh, the uh, defender of the uh, view I'm promoting here against this objection says, but note that the same kind of maneuver, the maneuver of naming your your uh, uh, your the thing which you are demonstrating, uh, could be made in the Rose Garden bomb scenario. Barry, since he doesn't know what time it is when he arrives at the, gar- at the Rose Garden, says, I hereby dub the time five minutes from now, POW. I know the bomb will explode by 10.53 a.m., he said, but will it explode at POW? That is, does POW equal 10 53. But, the objector continues, the cases are different, and they seem different in this way. When Barry named the time POW, let this objective time be named this name, he didn't know what time it was he was naming. He said he didn't know, um, uh, he didn't know what time it was when he got there. So he didn't know what time he was naming, and so therefore he didn't know what objective proposition he was asking about when he asked, is this time POW? But when Mary saw the red star and named her experience WOW, she knew what she was naming. Since she was acquainted with the experience, she had acquired a pure phenomenal concept of it. So what I want to question here is, in in promoting the analogy, is the assumption that there is something, phenomenal experience, that has both an autonomous place in a conception of the world as it is in itself and also this kind of distinctive epistemic role, something that brings kind of a, a kind of special epistemic uh, 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 kind of acquaintance. So I'm going to conclude by looking at an intuitively attractive and I think implicitly widely shared assumption about the relation between knowledge and experience that I think is one of the sources of resistance to the strategy of of you building on this analogy to diffuse the knowledge argument. So the assumption uh, that I want to talk about is I'm going to call the principle of phenomenal indistinguishability. Again, it's on on the handout. So the the principle says if two possibilities are epistemic alternatives for a knower at a time, that as both are compatible with um, his or her knowledge, 
then they are phenomenally indistinguishable to the knower at that time. Okay, so then the question is, what's phenomenal indistinguishability? The notion I have in mind is a simple behavioral capacity. Two experiential states of a person are phenomenally indistinguishable to a person just in case she can't tell the difference when she shifts from one to the other. So suppose to take a standard example, we have two quite different light reflectance properties that seem exactly the same color to a normal perceiver, that is, um, metamers, I guess they're called. Um, the viewer can't tell when one of the patterns of light projected on a screen of one of the colors is replaced by the other. You sort of shift back and forth, but says, you know, don't notice the time of the shift. So that's sort of your paradigm of phenomenal indistinguishability. Now, if one tried to pin this notion down more precisely, um, there would be problems. Uh, so uh, problems uh, uh, sort of intersect with problems that uh, Tim Williamson has done uh, more than anyone to, to bring out and show some of the consequences for our, our conception of knowledge. Uh, because our in his discussion of both vagueness and, and uh, uh, identity and discrimination and, and um, um, notions of luminosity he's talked about. But uh, so because our discriminatory capacities are limited, there will be intransitivities and borderline uh, cases. And it would certainly be a mistake, and it's probably a mistake made by um, some of the um, by, by the kind of picture I'm going, going to criticize. Uh, it would certainly be a mistake to to identify the phenomenal property, if there is such a thing, that one is referring to with phenomenal indistinguishability. So there can be dis, uh, distinct properties which are nevertheless uh, indistinguishable. Uh, there are also going to be issues about what to say about attention and where, cases where the inability to discriminate is caused by some kind of extraneous factors like uh, one's ability to pay sufficient attention. I, there are these famous uh, uh, experiments with so-called uh, attentional blindness. I just saw one uh, yesterday, a uh, demonstration of this, a discussion of the neuroscientific, um, 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 what well, I mean, they do brain imaging on, on these people, but you show two, two pictures on a screen, you flash back and forth between the two, and you say, there's something very different between the alternative pictures, um, and can you see what it is? And you look and you say, looks exactly the same to me, I don't see any difference between when you turn it on, turn it off go back and forth. And then somebody points out, he says, look just below the airplane wing, and you'll notice that every time you switch, there's a huge jet engine on the, on the, uh, on the wing which disappears in the second picture and reappears uh, in the next picture and disappears. Right? I'm an excellent subject for these things because I'm always the last person to notice it, to see it. But, uh, but there's a remarkable, uh, once you notice it, there's a remarkable difference between two pictures uh, which um, even when you're told there is a difference, you can't find it. So this is clearly a case, and uh, the brain imaging shows that you are in a quite different, uh, your brain is processing the difference, but it's not rising to the level of consciousness until it's pointed out. So one of the issues about when you define 
subjective indistinguishability, um, phenomenal indistinguishability, um, uh, does that count? Right? And of course, it's clear that, uh, that you can be ignorant of which picture is which. Um, so um, you definitely have epistemic alternatives. And so we want a notion of phenomenal indistinguishability that's relatively uh, relaxed so that it allows those two things to be phenomenally indistinguishable, even though they're different properties. Anyway, I'm not going to worry about the details of trying to pin down a plausible or reasonable notion of uh, phenomenal indistinguishability for, for making this principle plausible, because the counterexample uh, that I want to consider involves experiential states that are obviously discriminable on any plausible way of pinning the notion down and don't involve attentional uh, problems or anything like that. Um, to say of two alternative centered possible worlds um, uh, that they are phenomenally indistinguishable in the sense that I'm trying to use is to apply this notion counterfactually because, of course, you don't move back and forth between a world and a, counter, and a, and a counterfactual world. Uh, but you, can see, you certainly can make sense of the idea that if a subject who is, in fact, in one possible situation were instead in the other possible situation, she wouldn't know the difference. Uh, and perhaps, although this is a more controversial question, even with two different people, one might want to say that the kind of phenomenal state this person is in, uh, if instead that person were this other person, uh, or when we're a center of the world on another person, would be in a state that was uh, uh, phenomenally indistinguishable. I myself have a lot of skeptical doubts about whether that makes sense, but um, uh, we only need to worry about a single individual in our case. So what the principle says is that if two possible situations are epistemic alternatives for a person, they're two possible worlds compatible with the person's beliefs or knowledge, then they will be situations that the subject lacks this kind of capacity to distinguish. They're phenomenally indistinguishable. It may seem to be a truism that if two possible situations are epistemic alternatives, if one doesn't know which, situation, which of the two situations one is in, then one lacks the capacity to discriminate between them. Now, the empiricist holds that the evidential base, basis of all our knowledge is experience. And the traditional empiricist, for the traditional empiricist, it's phenomenal experience. Whatever the right story to tell is about how our knowledge can get beyond our experience, it seems natural to assume, and again, this is the kind of the internalist uh, perspective, that we can at least know the quality of our immediate experience, is that we know that it is the way it in fact is. But our story about Mary in the coin flip scenario seems to conflict with this natural assumption. So this was our coin flip scenario. Mary doesn't know whether she's in world R or in world uh, G. She's just seen a red star, but is ignorant of whether it is red or green. The two possible situations we used to represent her ignorance were physically different. World R is the actual world, while in non-actual world G, she's presented with a green star, with all the optical and physiological consequences that that would have had in the actual world. Since Mary knows all the general optical and physiological facts, these facts will hold in all worlds that are epistemic possibilities for her. But it seems intuitively clear 
that these two possible worlds are phenomenally as well as physically different. If the flip of the coin, again, counterfactual, if the flip of the coin had been different and Mary had been shown the green star instead, things would have looked very different to her. Not just subtly different, but radically different. Nevertheless, despite this uh, very strong phenomenal difference between her experience in the two counterfactual, in the two alternatives, she still doesn't know which of the two situations she is in. Now, if we assume that epistemic alternatives must be phenomenally indistinguishable, then world G, and assuming this principle then, then uh, world G is excluded. She has the phenomenal information that the world is not world G, because that's a situation where you're having a, a phenomenally green experience. To account for Mary's ignorance of which color she is seen in this case, one will be required to suppose that there is a different possible world, G, G star, which is physically just like world G, but phenomenally just like world R. And if we accept that, then we have bought the hypothesis of phenom Lewis's hypothesis of phenomenal information. Now, just before looking at the upshot of rejecting the principle of phenomenal indistinguishability, I want to take a quick look at what happened to Mary, uh, after you might be interested to know about her, her experiences after the experiment took place. She was unfortunately not allowed out into the world, but she was confined again, but this time into the Nida Rumelin room, which you'll recall is the room which is wallpapered with random colored shapes with no recognizable colored objects. This time Mary's accompanied by her friend Pierre, about whom we'll hear more next week. Uh, Pierre, at this time in his career, was still a monolingual French speaker, a language that Mary does not know. She never does learn which of the two colors it is that she is seeing when she goes back into the room. But she experiences many other colors, not knowing which they are either. But Pierre teaches her the names of the colors in French. Perhaps she learns a lot of, Fran a lot of French from Pierre, not by translation into English, since he doesn't know English, but from the ground up. So she comes to know that the star she first saw was the color named rouge in French, but she still doesn't know whether it was red or green, or at least whether it's the color called red or the color called green. Now, I know it strains credibility to tell you that the brilliant Mary couldn't figure out what the colors are after all this time and with all this information, but we left realism behind a long time ago. Uh, and uh, I don't think the um, uh, points I want to make depend on um, uh, the story being realistic. But anyway, assuming all this, should we still say at this point that Mary doesn't know what color the things she sees are? She knows of red things that they are rouge, and of rouge things that they give rise to the wow-type phenomenal experience. Why does her old word red connect more directly to the property red than her new word rouge? And why does her old word Fred connect less or more directly to her phenomenal experience of red than her new word wow? We, who attribute belief and knowledge 
refer to properties and things and qualia, if there are such things, and we characterize the contents of other people's belief in terms of those things. Decades of discussion of Frege cases have gotten us used to the fact that things and properties can impact our cognitive lives in different ways and that we may be unaware of the fact that it's one thing rather than two that we know about in two different ways. If I don't know that Hesperus is phosphorus, does that mean that I don't know what Hesperus or what phosphorus is or what Hesperus or phosphorus refers to? The notion of knowing what or knowing who someone or something is is notoriously problematic and context-dependent. Some people have argued that we never, and I'll discuss this argument next week, that we never really know about things in the external world what they are in themselves. That is, we never know what they are in what David Lewis calls, quote, an uncommonly literal and demanding sense, unquote. But phenomenal experience was supposed to be different. It is presented directly. It is supposed to be its own mode of presentation. Uh, Pure phenomenal concepts, such as the one Mary allegedly acquires when she leaves the room, this is a couple of quotes from Dave Chalmers, uh, quote, these concepts characterize the phenomenal quality as the phenomenal quality that it is. Another quote, the referent of the concept is somehow present inside the concept's sense in a way much stronger than in the usual cases of direct reference, unquote. Now, I, what I'm skeptical of is that there are things, pure phenomenal concepts, that have these mysterious properties, or that there are, there's anything that will connect our knowledge to our experience in a way that vindicates the principle of phenomenal indistinguishability. But whether or not one shares this skepticism, my, my main sort of argument here is that if we do buy that principle, the principle of phenomenal indistinguishability, on the handout, um, um, this then we're stuck with the hypothesis of phenomenal information that Lewis outlined with all of its problems. Um, so that's the um, um, that's uh, the conclusion that the principle of phenomenal indistinguishability, together with the facts about what Mary knows and does not know in the coin flip uh, scenario, entail the hypothesis of phenomenal information. Now, on the other hand, if we reject the principle, then we're left without an intentional foundation, a point at which our thought meets its subject matter in a direct and context-independent way. Our epistemic relation to our experience uh, on, on the view that rejects this principle is like our epistemic relation to anything else in the world. If this is right, then we should not think of our epistemic relation to Hesperus or Bismarck or water as indirect in a way that contrasts with some alternative, more direct epistemic relation. Perhaps there is no, quote, uncommonly literal and demanding sense in which we know things as they are in themselves. Perhaps our knowledge of the internal world is as indirect as our knowledge of what lies beyond it, or more plausibly, perhaps we need a better conception of what it is for knowledge to be direct. Thanks. Mm -hmm.